We always knew a podcast was an upwards future. Some of our most inspirational and memorable conversations have stemmed from off-the-cuff, out-of-the-box, thoughtful dialogue with our very own upward citizens. We exist as a space where diverse perspectives can come together to breed originality. And the takeaway is a richer and more enlightened understanding of one another, ultimately translating to a better and stronger personal and professional relationship. So we thought we'd explore some interesting topics of our own in a format that encourages organic and elevated conversation and connections between participants and listeners alike. So why not put our own stamp on a podcast? Thank you for tuning in to Upward Hartford's podcast, Word Up. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with Henry Edinger, co-founder, chief operating officer of Cloud9 Online, and Natasha Zina, publisher and editor-in-chief of Lioness Magazine. Our co-host today is Upward's very own marketing manager, Jess Morin. Thank you for having us. Henry, welcome to the show. Uh, you know, we've yet to meet in person other than that one time in the hallway that I don't remember. Uh, but I, I know you're behind a few businesses, uh, you know, that, that live at Upward. I'm really interested in hearing about the progression from Experience Design International to Solstice Strategy Partners and, you know, what I believe is the newest venture, Cloud9 Online. Can you share a little bit about how these ventures came to be and if there was ever any cross-pollination in any way? Yeah, sure. So um, Experience Design International is really, it's me and my partner, Delina Davis. It's a management consulting company, basically, and we consult on customer experience and market research primarily with a strong lean towards anything strategy. So basically, if you need something fixed or you think you may have a problem with something, we're there to help you. And so we have some it's fascinating when we went to name it, we, we were going to name it Experience Design, and then we threw in international because we just wanted to travel internationally and have international clients, and that's what we have. So it's really fun. Like, it's a test in uh, manifestation. And then Delena had started Solstice six and a half years ago, more a little over six and a half years ago, and we it had been a service, basically a services company. So they did Reiki and some life coaching and uh, some hypnosis, some meditation. And their goal, her and Rita McRae, who co-founded it with her, their goal was to reach as many lives as they could by 2020. Actually, they put a number out there of a billion lives. And so when I had left Travelers and started Experience Design, it made sense for me to kind of be a part of both businesses. And so, you know, we decided in 2017 to switch our services from in-person services to digital. And that's what drove us to start creating our apps. And so right now we have 11 apps in market for different companies Wow! and uh, one, you know, several of them are ours and uh, it's become very exciting. Now we're, we're, we're literally in the health tech space with cloud nine online. And, and basically the progression from Solstice to cloud nine online was just changed the name because we felt like we had moved from the services piece of Solstice Strategy Partners to more digital platform, which we have now with Cloud9 Online. It's really fascinating where it's going right now when we talk about uh, health and health tech and meditation. We're just on this rocket ship right now because the world needs meditation. So mm. we're uh, launching, we've already launched to Hartford Healthcare's 32,000 employees and we're in connection with uh, St. Francis, 
right now and it looks really positive for them and Trinity Health of New England. And we're even connecting with UConn Health right now. So we have multiple hospitals in play. We have multiple businesses that we've done apps for for meditation and feel like there's the world needs it more now than ever. And we're super excited about what, what we're going to be able to do with bringing meditation to people. And our, our differentiator is, is that we want to hit the mass market, not, not yogi market. There's nothing wrong with the yogi market. We would be happy to sell our product to them. But, but we believe that if we're going to limit chronic pain and with meditation and we're going to help people with cancer with meditation and now ultimately help people in this pandemic where their lives are turning upside down with meditation, well, that flip actually is broad market into everyone. So we're going to guide people through how to, you know, understand their bodies and minds more and help themselves, which I think is just so powerful. And I couldn't be happier to be doing it. Natasha, I really want to hear about your foundation as well, kind of in terms of founding Lioness, which I know even before my time at Upward, you worked a little bit with Shauna and a little bit with Samantha mm-hmm. in the beginning stages. And then maybe as a follow-up, we can kind of chat about forms of content that really inspired your path to mm-hmm. founding Lioness. But maybe you can just talk to me about um, how it came to be in the first place. So I'm a journalist by trade and I'm from uh, Western Massachusetts and kind of grew up writing for the local newspapers there, some of the weeklies and monthlies, um, and even the daily as a freelancer for a while. What ended up happening was I started working with a lot of female entrepreneurs. It wasn't something that was planned. And I started doing PR for a few women's conferences. And I noticed um, one time in particular at a conference that whenever female founders got together, they were kind of like, you know, how do you figure out QuickBooks? How do you do email marketing? And I was really naive because as a journalist, I read everything. And I was like, why don't you just pick up Entrepreneur or Fast Company, you know? (laughs) We do, but it's geared towards guys. And I had never really noticed that because I read everything. Sure. So I kind of went back and I flipped through a couple, you know, entrepreneurs and ink magazines and thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. Let me see if, you know, I, if there is something out there for women. And there are tons of publications for women in business. But if you were a female founder who wanted to launch a high growth startup, there was nothing for you, you know? Sure. Um, Entrepreneur Inc., they, they do cover women from time to time, but they weren't really covering the issues that um, female founders had like their gaps, you know, in terms of like access to capital and not being able to find strong networks and not having great experiences and startup accelerators and, uh, and dealing with things like imposter syndrome and the confidence gap. And they weren't really speaking to those things. And I was like, I think I can do that. You know, <laughs> I'm a journalist. I don't have to have the founder experience, but I could totally put together a publication and, you know, interview these people and kind of get this content going. And so I created, I'll never forget, this cover of Lioness, right? Oh my God, in word publisher. So you can imagine (laughs) how amazing it looked, right? And I sent it out to some female founders I knew. And I said, you know, if this existed, would you guys read it? And a couple of them were like, you know, if you're serious, well, actually, I'd help you, you know, get something together. And I thought it was just going to be for Massachusetts. And I kind of said, all right, we're going to launch this thing. We'll do like a soft launch and see if we can get interviews. And what ended up happening was um, about three, no, maybe about two or three issues in, we just became inundated with pitches from around the world because female founders were having a hard time getting ink anywhere. 
And I ended up calling it the Lioness Group because I'm a Leo and I love the vibe of Lioness and all that kind of stuff. Wow. Awesome. That's great. I, I love hearing the stories of, you know, people who have the nine to five safety net, you know, and then, you know, they just go full force into this idea. Uh, and it must be terrifying. It must be scary. But, you know, look where you are now. And that's amazing. It's super inspiring. All right. Our team has done a great deal of research, piling various words to create great topics of discussion, some of which we've shared with you. Uh, and we're going to now give you that word. And the word of the day is censorship. I can jump in. I imagine uh, Natasha is going to be way better at this, it's something much more to the core of what she does. But when I think about it from how we think about the world from a meditation perspective and an openness, it's the opposite of how I think about things completely. I think about open and honest and understanding. And I also believe that if you come to things with, with an understanding of love and what, what can be, you censorship's the wrong idea. I want to hear what people are saying and how people think. And even if someone believes something totally opposite of what I think, I, I, don't, I don't dislike them for it. I don't say they shouldn't say it. I just believe that they, they have their free will to think that. And so from when you, when you kind of get at peace with who you are and you, you, have, you bring less ego to the table, um, you, don't, you don't worry about what other people think. And, and so it makes me very free. So I never think about censorship as something that's uh, like, you know, I love it. Everyone's got an opinion. I might not even agree with the opinion. I might have historical evidence of why someone shouldn't think that way. But to me, it, you know, it's what I, I kind of think about it like this, like, what's their reason? Like, I, I try to intellectualize it in a way, but, but also come from love. And so I think when you come from love, you know, censorship's not something that you really want to do. So I, I understand what censorship is. I also think censorship is something that people do out of fear and and that's the other thing that i i just don't really believe in i think you know you have to confront that fear you have to understand if censorship says that i know you shouldn't do x y and z and i always say you can't ever know my journey you can't know what i'm supposed to do you no one should do that not the government not not anyone not my mother not my father not not my kids so so censorship to me is someone saying they know something about me that they can't possibly know and I don't believe in it. And that's, that's my short answer. Just to continue on the path that he was on for a second, I love what he said about fear because it makes me think of my own self-censorship. So I, by nature, am a people pleaser. And so definitely through my early 20s when I was kind of navigating my way through business and um, in the newsroom, as I began to go from like, you know, reporter to assistant editor to assistant managing editor, um, I was always concerned with, okay, how am I, how am I going to deliver this to the person that I'm either managing or working with? Um, oh my God, was that too harsh? Um, was that okay? Um, or maybe I really kind of think this, but I don't want to share it all the way because they might think, who the hell does she think she is? <laughs> and so that is something that I have to continuously work on to make sure that I'm not censoring myself that, um, cause I, you know, YNS in a part of our culture, we use radical candor, meaning I'm being candid. I'm telling you exactly what I think and I feel, but I'm always delivering it with love and respect. 
And so whenever I get very uncomfortable, because some topics I don't want to, like, oh, this might get a little uncomfortable, I have to remind myself not to censor myself, but to always deliver whatever I'm about to say, even though it's uncomfortable, with radical candor. Because then when I do, then it's a little less uncomfortable. Um, so I, I really loved um, when, when Henry was talking about that fear aspect. Um, the other piece, uh, I think, of censorship that I always think about when I went to Thailand, it was through group study exchange through Rotary International, and they paired you with somebody who did the job that you do in your country. So it was like four professionals. It was like real world style. You were like throwing together, you know, <laughs> traveling throughout the country. Anyway, I ended up linking up with a journalist there, and their idea of censorship was so different than ours. So for instance, if tonight there's an accident outside on the street here, somebody is struck by a vehicle, we would never release that person's name right away as members of the media because we want to wait till their family is notified. Um, we would also never show images of their body in the street. And in their perspective, that was censorship. And so that was like, oh, that was, it was a learning tool for me. They were like, hey, you're censoring what happened versus when I was there and I watched the news, they showed you who wasn't actually laying in the street. Um, so you could be a mother at home watching and going, oh my gosh, that's my child. You know, you, you didn't, weren't even aware. And so it just always, one of the things that, uh, which kind of goes back to Henry, what Henry was saying about differences of opinion. One is not always necessarily right or wrong. Um, there's always, you know, just different sides of the coin. So that always just really struck me about censorship and who thought who was, you know, really doing the censoring. Just to follow up then, I think we've got some really great follow-up questions to both of those answers. But Henry, I just want to go back to something that you said about, you know, your your first reaction was censorship is not something that I incorporate into my daily life, just to paraphrase you. Because, you know, the whole goal of meditation and mindfulness is being open to kind of receive any different you know, form of feedback that you might get. Um, but in my research of censorship, because I was thinking like, censorship's got to mean something beyond just like our initial thinking of the word censorship, especially in today's digital world, right? In today's hyper-political world, right? Where censorship is on kind of the tips of everyone's tongues in, in a different way. But I kind of discovered that censor is a noun related to the aspect of the superego, to get a little Freudian, um, said to prevent certain ideas or memories from emerging into someone's consciousness. So I was wondering um, kind of your take on how mindfulness might be considered a form of that kind of censor. I'm not sure I'm going to answer this the way you, you're, you're thinking, but, you know, just to, I want to just add this one little piece because Natasha got me thinking about one other piece of this is you could think that the government, um, the government just released something on um, UFOs, right? And videos. And so feels more official that the government did it and that's we all believe and hear and believe that all, a million people were lying, right? So you say, um, what's the context of it? And so when, when you have censorship and it's for, because people don't have the capacity to understand everything that's going on, that's, that's, that's not the censorship where it's, it's bad. It's actually that I have, I have a context that, we can't bring everybody up to speed on the fact that there might be aliens in a way that they can actually ingest it 
And so in 1960, there was no way to really communicate it in, in a way, or 1970, or even, you know, even today it's harder, but it's a lot easier to understand. And so, so if you think about it in the sense of, do you have the capacity? If everybody knew there were super viruses all over the place all the time, we would be freaking out and you would never leave the house. And so it would impact people's lives. And so the positive side of censorship is trying to understand, can you create enough context for the message you're going to put out there or the thing you're going to put out there? And, and even Natasha's story about someone being in the street and seeing, you know, and then the news reporting it and showing it's my kid before I had a chance to, I knew you know, you'd say, I think we would mostly say that that's, that's very in, not compassion, right? There's no compassion in that. And so the context of it does matter. The censor, the censoring of, of it says, you know, I, I need to know that you can handle the information. And so we have something that uh, Delaine and I say to each other, because we're both problem solvers. And what happens Sometimes when you just want to vent, and I know people, you must know people in your life and you talk to them and you're, you know, you're working on things. And if you, if you, someone's venting to you and you try to problem solve, what happens, right? It's basically, you're not listening to me. I didn't. And so now we do something that I, I really like, which is I ask a question up front as I can feel the venting coming. And I just say, am I listening or am I problem solving? And, and it, it creates good, good context for, for the next piece of this. And so, and, and what I mean by that is that I'll just listen. I'll just sit back and take it all in and hold space for you versus if we're problem solving, I'm going to have ideas. And even some of those ideas might be that you have to change a little bit, that that person wasn't completely wrong or this or that. So, right. So you create context for what you're doing. And so context of the censorship, I think is, is really, really important. I think, when you start start talking about superego and Jung and Freud and it, it it's a it's a super fascinating place because that's why I mentioned ego before. Censorship in my mind is that if you can take it back for a second, when people have extreme ego, they believe that you you can only do X, Y, or Z, or you have to know these things. And to me, that's that's like just antithetical to how I think. I, I don't presume to understand Natasha's life. I, I, I can't. I can't possibly. And I, don't, I, I know very few people that I could ever even step into that circle. So even with my kids, I try to understand that it, this is my ego trying to make you do something. This is my... So I let it think about it this way, that, that if I'm egoless, then I can come as egoless as you can be. Actually, you have to have a heck of a lot of ego to be egoless, by the way. You have to be so, <laughs> irony, right? You have to be so confident in yourself. And that's why people aren't doing it. Because for the most part, when you don't meditate and when you don't sink into yourself and you don't like have this feeling of your own understanding, then you, you put up a force field and that becomes ego. And then that ego becomes censoring because now I'm telling you, you're only getting this information. You're only getting it that way. I'm going to tell you how it really is. And it's, it's just fascinating to me. I just, I love what Henry was saying about ego. I always have to come from a place of, um, I, I always question, okay, that response, meaning my response, is that from ego, are they triggering something in me? So for instance, my mother was very strict growing up. So there was a lot of, you should do, not like, do you want to do? And so growing up, when somebody always 
began a sentence with like, do this, or you, I was like, even if I was at work and my boss mm-hmm. was like, do that, I'm like, who the hell do you think you're talking to? <laughs> I like, uh, you. So I was always very sensitive to that. And whenever that would pop up, a good example is um, when me and my co-founder really started getting to know each other. And she realized that obviously that that was like a trigger button for me. I remember one time she was asking me to do something and she might've just said it really casual, like, you know, could you do whatever the heck? And I was like, oh, because are you telling me what to do? And she was like, oh, I'm not telling you what to do. Just do it. But I'm like, for some reason, it just gets my back going. And so, um, yeah, I just really loved what Henry, what Henry was saying about ego, because sometimes I think um, it's healthy to have a little bit of ego, but to check it. But I always say there's a fine line between, you know, ego and pride. So to try to check mm. where your decision making is coming from. So I think this is, you know, this is kind of a springboard for a whole a whole other conversation about how censorship is kind of a, a form of control, right? It's a, it's a power thing. It's personal power to respond to censorship, but also kind of the force on the outside, right? So we really appreciate your candid answers. I love that radical candor, Natasha. I'm going to use that. lioness <laughs> all the time. Thank you for having me. This was great. You've been listening to Upward Hartford's podcast, Word Up. Word Up. Word up. Word up. Until next time. Thank you so much, guys. It reminds me of a, a rap song. I don't know if you know the line, like, word them up, doc, bad as hell. <laughs> cool day. Oh, yeah. yeah. Throwback. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a, sorry, it's 80s rap. But... Hey, this throwback. Uh, <laughs> almost throwback. <laughs>